Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the WFIU-WTIU Newsroom, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU. We're recording the show remotely today to avoid the risk of spreading infection. And today we're going to be talking about nursing homes and elder care during the pandemic. We have four guests with us joining us by phone. We have Lynn Klo, who's the state ombudsman for long-term care. Melissa Romer, who's care management team leader at Area 10. Luann Blake is the Heritage House, Heritage House facility administrator. That's a facility in Greensburg, Indiana. And Sarah Waddle is the AARP state director. You can send us your questions or your comments at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So thank you all for being here with us today. And I wanted to start uh, with Lynn, I believe, Lynn Klo, and talk about uh, you know, how your job has changed as the state ombudsman during this pandemic. Uh, well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for having me on your show. I really appreciate that, being able to um, talk for the uh, long-term care ombudsman program. Um, our job has changed a little bit. Um, most people don't know um, exactly what the long-term care ombudsman program is. Um, we are a group of um, ombudsmen. We advocate for residents of licensed long-term care facilities, such as nursing homes, um, licensed assisted living facilities, and other licensed residential care facilities. Our ombudsmen are trained to um, assist residents with complaints and resolve problems. And we are resident directed, meaning that we act only upon permission of the resident or their authorized representative if the resident is not able to give us permission. Um, and uh, um, finally, uh, all ombudsman program services are free and um, uh, information is kept confidential. As far as um, how our program has changed um, during the pandemic, um, we we began hearing getting phone calls. Uh, that's how most people um, get in touch with us, residents and uh, family members and their uh, residents uh, representatives. Ombudsman contact information is posted in every facility. And uh, we, we talk about resident rights. Um, that's one of the ombudsman's, the first rules of being an ombudsman is, is talking to long-term care residents that they still have rights. They had rights before they moved into a facility and they still continue to have those rights. Um, but um, like I was saying, our, our calls started to change a little bit um, when, uh, uh, visitation was uh, began to be restricted uh, due to COVID. And we were getting calls from very frustrated family members who, who were not um, being able to see their loved ones. Um, and over time, uh, now we're hearing, um, we were very excited because um, the um, Department of Health has come out with new guidelines. We're starting um, today. Um, effective today uh, for uh, essential family caregivers being back in uh, facilities and uh, outdoor visitation. So um, our, our role has changed somewhat. I, I do want people to know that we are still available. Ombudsmen have been restricted from being in facilities as well. Um, as, as family members. So um, that has been difficult because ombudsmen are, are used to being seen in facilities and um, um, are very, are, they're regular visitors in facilities. Um, but um, 
We are still continuing our um, our our advocacy. We are able to be reached via phone. We've done Zoom Zoomed uh, meetings, uh, conference calls. Um, we're we're still available to all residents. So, Melissa uh, Romer, you're the care management team leader for Area 10. So, COVID-19 has has had a major effect on a lot of people. I'm sure that you deal with on a regular basis. So, can you talk about um, about what's going on with Area 10 and the, the folks that your clients? Yes, and thank you for having us on the call today. Things have definitely changed. Um, Area 10 Agency on Aging is one of our community um, partners that goes out and has direct contact with the elderly and the disabled. And especially during COVID-19, those individuals are the most vulnerable um, at this time for this virus. We have a lot of different programs that Area 10 um, does throughout the community. We have our care managers that go out and meet with individuals in their own homes. Uh, we do in-person assessments. Uh, we base all of the care that we provide for individuals as far as in-home services like caregivers coming in to help with daily activities. Uh, we base all of that on person-centered planning. So it's been challenging, um, especially with this demographic, to be able to communicate over the telephone um, in order to try to get a full picture of what's going on with that person and how best to implement services to support their needs. We have our rural transit. Um, we have wonderful drivers that are still able to go out and provide transportation for the community. We've implemented um, barriers as well as deep cleaning of all of the buses uh, regularly throughout the day in between shifts. We have received wonderful outpouring support from Monroe and Owen counties and donations, volunteers offering to help. We have our retired senior volunteer program where a bunch of Retired seniors come and volunteer to assist with other individuals in the communities. And one of the things that's been really wonderful is they've been making friendly calls to people that may be in those facilities that um, you know Lynn spoke about and having difficulty trying to Oh, sorry, cut out there. Um, <laughs> having difficulty trying to make sure that they're maintaining social relationships in this time when we're supposed to be social distancing. Um, so they can call and talk with people, brighten their spirits, let them know that they do have support. Uh, we've even seen hand-sewn masks um, be delivered for our volunteers and employees. Um, we've had our main office um, closed to the public and have been staggered, you know, shared space to continue social distancing. Um, so there's been a lot of changes, some challenges, but very impressed with the way that um, our community has responded. Yeah, thank you, Melissa. So Sarah Waddle, um, I'm sure that life has changed for you too with the uh, AARP. So what are some of the unique steps that the state AARP has taken to try to serve your population? Sure. Hi, Bob. Um, thanks for asking AARP to be part of today's conversation. Um, you know, life has changed uh, for us at AARP as well. Um, as you may know, we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan member organization uh, here in Indiana. We represent about 820,000 members and their families. Um, and it's really about uh, working to empower people to choose how they live as they age. Um, so taking that purpose and, and looking what's happening um, with COVID in our long-term care facilities, um, it has caused us to become pretty hyper-focused on um, this issue. Uh, obviously, you know, we have some other priorities, but this is really taken front and center, um, working at both a state level and federal level 
um, looking at policy recommendations and um, you know, making sure that our facilities, the workers in our facilities and our residents and our families um, are being served um, the best that they can be during this time. There isn't a playbook for this. Um, so it's, it's a little bit um, fast and furious and trying to get all this figured out. But um, I think, you know, AARP is always up for the challenge. Right. So I, I know that uh, we, we've had a lot of questions about nursing homes and about this, this population. And I'm going to ask a few of them now. I mean, one of them is a pretty basic question, but I, I hope that maybe Lynn could start with this answer. It says a, a majority, this is from Barbara, majority of residents in these uh, long-term care facilities don't go out much. How or who is infecting them? and what kind of follow-up is being done? Um, I'm, I'm not sure I understand the question. Could you repeat well, it, Bob? <laughs> yeah, well, I think the question is basically if, uh, you know, that nursing homes have been areas where there have been a lot of infection, um, at least that, that's, I'm, I'm stating, a, I guess, a very broad, making a broad statement. But um, since a lot of the folks who do live in the nursing homes, this, that's what this question says, don't go out much. Is it being brought in by family members, by workers? Do we know in those areas where there have been hotspots? Um, okay. Yeah. All right, thank you. Um, I think, um, you know, many residents don't go out of uh, long-term care facilities. However, um, you know, Sometimes residents become ill and they are transferred to the hospital. Some residents have um, um, dialysis three times a week and need to go out. Um, dialysis is not um, provided in, in most nursing facilities, so they go to a dialysis center. So some residents are, are, are being transported in and out of, uh, out of the facilities. Um, I know that facilities are taking great care to protect those residents, um, you know, from transportation um, and, and getting them out of the building into, you know, where they're going and, and coming back in. But, you know, there's always that we, we don't know exactly, you know, how COVID is being transferred. But um, um, we also know that um, as careful as staff is and in, in using um, hand washing techniques and, and PP, uh, personal protective equipment or PPE um, uh, correctly. And, uh, you know, they've all been trained on it and I know they use it, um, but, you know, sometimes things happen. Um, um, we also have staff going in and out of, you know, they go home at night and I'm sure, you know, they're very careful. They um, take all precautions, but they go back in the next day. So again, it, it can happen. I think the visitation restrictions helped with that. Um, uh, you know, having as few people in and out of the facilities as possible has um, hopefully reduced the number of, of COVID positive cases in facilities. If, if uh, I could ask you to um, expand a little bit on the rules that changed today, and I was um, trying to ask Luann, but we lost her. We're hoping that we can get her back. Um, but if you could talk a little bit about, about what is available now or what, what is possible now for people who are going to be um, trying to visit their loved ones in nursing homes. Well, we are, we are very excited about this, and, and um, the ombudsman program is very um, happy to have been a part of this and working with uh, the Family and Social Services Administration in Indiana and the Department of Health. The outdoor family visitation um, guidelines were uh, released um, on, on June 3rd, and um, what it, what it means is, I mean, there still are, are restrictions, um, but up to this point, uh, family members have been reduced to use, using phones. Um, and I, I've heard so many stories of facility staff 
who have used their own personal phones to help um, um, residents talk with family members. And, you know, many of many residents are um, older adults who aren't always used to tech technology and may need a little help with using cell phones or iPads or any other kind of technology. And um, like I said, I, I've, I've heard some great stories of, of the staff who have really helped with that communication. Um, other family members have been, you know, doing window visiting, um, but that's that's not the same as being able to like actually see your loved one, um, you know, sitting across from you. The outdoor visitation, while it does still have some restrictions, um, you know, res, uh, uh, a fan, uh, family members, um, you know, we're asking them, I think, to um, limit to uh, two or three visitors. There must be a sign-up sheet at the facility. Um, visitors need to be checked um, by facility staff, you know, to make sure that they don't have symptoms of COVID or, or they don't have a temperature. Um, and setting up an outdoor area, you know, uh, particularly because it's, it's starting to get hot out, going to be hot every day, um, a shaded area, hopefully, uh, where people can sit while maintaining physical distancing, um, still wearing masks, but at least they have that opportunity now to actually see their loved one and their loved one can see them. Um, touching is, is not um, uh, encouraged. Um, you know, I know that Personally, for me, I uh, I'm distancing physically distancing from my grandchildren, but that's really hard. I want to hug them, <laughs> and I know that's difficult for um, for residents and and their family members. The other thing that we're very excited about is um, the essential family caregivers uh, in long-term care facilities. Those guidelines just came out last week and and went into effect today in order to give facilities time enough to prepare. And what this is, is so many uh, residents had prior to COVID, um, they had a, a family member who was in, in the facility with them uh, providing essential care uh, every day or at least several times a week, maybe helping them bathe or feeding them, helping them eat. Um, just providing companionship. And this uh, applies to family members or even personal uh, private uh, caregivers, uh, a partner who comes in. Um, this, these guidelines, like I said, start today. And um, we, we know that, that, that that's such a critical role um, because it, it, it gives the family member a chance to be with that, that their loved one. Um, now, um, they are allowed to come in, the, they can schedule um, an amount of time with the facility and provide that care and the support similar to what they were giving before COVID. So uh, we're hoping that this will help calm some of their, the family members' fears and, 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 and give them some comfort and, and, and actually able to see their loved one again. Okay, I want to ask Melissa and uh, Sarah if either one of them has any any follow up to that in terms of the populations that you work with. Uh, sure, this is Melissa Romer with Area Ten. Um, I think it's important for you know different restrictions to be put in place to protect this endangered population, and it's you know it's a scary time. We're still learning more and more about the virus, and you know there's been. Um, some studies showing that people are not expressing any symptoms. And so someone who thinks they're fine could potentially spread the disease. So that's why it's just so important to maintain social distancing, frequently wash hands, uh, wear face masks, do anything you can to protect others as well as yourself. We've been able to um, disperse some personal protective equipment um, to our employees and volunteers. Um, if we drop off a delivery, we knock on the door, immediately step back at least six feet in order to make sure the person is able to get the items that we delivered. Um, so I think it's very important to stay vigilant um, during this time. Right. 
Okay, I want to give our uh, the ways to, to get a hold of us again. If you want to send us a question or a comment, news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can contact us there. Uh, Sarah? This is more. Yeah, I think um, when I was listening, I think Melissa used the word diligent, and um, I, I think that's going to be super important during this time where we start to um, open these facilities back up um, under some specific guidelines. And I just, um, you know, I hope that facilities all feel like they have um, appropriate staffing and appropriate protective equipment um, on hand to be able to manage um, these uh, visit outdoor visitations. And I hope that, um, you know, the State Department of Health is really paying attention um, to see what happens uh, during this time um, so that they are aware of um, if this is working or, um, you know, maybe we need to rethink some things. So I think, you know, we need to be paying close attention to this. Um, and I know um, facilities across the state, they do marvelous work. And I'm sure that, um, you know, folks are going to be really happy to see their loved ones. Okay. Comment that um, probably Lynn will have you react to first. But this is from Mike, and he says the Indiana numbers from COVID-19 positive tests and deaths don't match those available from federal sources, which we've reported here. But the last report said that the state reports were a significant undercount. Um, and then he goes on to say locally he has a friend at a nursing home where there was a significant outbreak. The numbers reported for the state and then for Monroe County don't reflect the numbers that the facility is reporting. So he's talking basically about all this confusion between the numbers. So maybe Lynn, if you can just kind of address that and if you can explain it all, just sort of the confusion and the different numbers. Can you talk to that? Um, I can speak somewhat to that. Um, I know that there has been some discrepancies. Um, um, the the um, data released from uh, by the Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, um, CMS, um, uh, that number was nearly 200 more than what Indiana reported on the same day. And um, I think this was this was as of uh, last week, I believe um, there have been uh, um, now this is the number of deaths, but over 1,100 deaths in nursing homes uh, from the, the coronavirus. Um, the Dr. Daniel Rusiniak, the chief medical officer for the Indiana Family and Social Services Administration, um, I know has said that they're, they're current, the Department of Health is uh, currently looking into those differences and trying out, trying to figure out how um, how the state can get closer to actual numbers. Um, they say that that discrepancy could stem from a difference in how the data um, have been reported in Indiana. I think um, there were actually, there have been two different systems, data systems in which the data from facilities have been reported. Um, and uh, initially nursing homes used a system in, in, uh, called Gateway um, to report their deaths to the state, um, but they were told to use a different system after um, they were um, told to start reporting the deaths. So I think those two systems may not have talked to each other very well. And so that could be the, the reason for the discrepancy. Um, I know that the state now plans to transition to um, a reporting system that more closely aligns with um, the Centers for Medicare and, and Medicaid Services or CMS. Um, so um, we know that um, certainly there needs to be a, a, a step towards correcting um, um, the failure to be more transparent um, in long-term care facilities. I think that um, all of that is, that's very essential information that all Hoosiers have the right to know, certainly. Mike went on to say in his email, he was just commenting on how the state is not releasing any statistics for each facility. Um, do you know, I mean, is that something that other states are doing? 
as well? I do know that other states um, are releasing their uh, facility level data. Indiana is not doing that at this time. Um, the, the ombudsman program uh, believes very strongly that um, facilities need to be very open and transparent with their residents and their family members at this time um, because people need that kind of information in order to make informed choices. I, I like, I use the example, if, if your mother or your grandmother fell and broke her hip, went to the hospital for um, hip surgery for the repair, and then needed to go to a, a nursing home for rehab, rehabilitation, you, as a family member, you would want to do your research. You'd want to know what facility, where you wanted to put your mother. She's going to be there for, you know, four to six weeks, perhaps for physical therapy. Where are you going to put her? Um, you want to know that you want to know that she's going to be in a safe place where they're going to um, care for her properly, certainly. And um, I think that knowing these numbers would go a long way towards that. Um, you you want to know if there have been a lot of COVID positive cases in a facility. Um, but um, to this time, uh, Indiana has chosen not to, to um, release that information, or I don't know that they actually have that information. Sarah Waddle, you've talked about that a little bit. I think AARP has talked about the trying to get more data available and trying to be more transparent. Is that correct? Absolutely. And I, I couldn't agree with Lynn more. Um, I think it's imperative that um, we have this data. And I think that there have, has been an outcry and a response um, with a lot of good intentions. Um, we have some facilities uh, releasing data on their own. We have some local health departments that are releasing data. We have media outlets that are trying to track it. And then, um, as we mentioned, the new um, data that's being released from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Um, so we have this like huge patchwork system and none of it is apples to apples. Um, you know, the discrepancies between the CMS data and the state of Indiana um, a couple of things we need to keep in mind. One, the CMS data is only looking at nursing and skilled nursing facilities, whereas the Indiana numbers have been tracking um, the broad spectrum of long-term care facilities, including residential and assisted living. Um, additionally, the CMS data um, only requires a facility to report um, back to the beginning of May. It, it, they are encouraged to report anything that happened prior to that, but that data may be missing an entire two months of um, cases and deaths that occurred. Um, and so there's just a, a lot of discrepancies and it could all really easily be cleared up um, if the state of Indiana would just serve as that clearinghouse and put the data that they have somewhere um, and put it out there for folks to clear up the confusion and make our communities safer. 32 other states are doing it um, and there isn't really a reason um, why Indiana shouldn't be doing the same. Okay, I think we have Lou Ann Blake from Heritage House facility in uh, Greensburg with us now. So uh, Lou Ann, I, I was trying to ask you earlier um, about the changes that are coming up with visitation and how that's going to you know, affect your facility. So if you could uh, unmute your, your uh, microphone and talk to us. We're working, our uh, corporation is working on the policy procedure guidelines to be able to start that. Uh, we're cautiously excited about it uh, we haven't really marketed it yet to our residents until we have our guidelines in place. But I think uh, it'll be a good thing, a positive thing. We've allowed uh, window visits up till now. And um, so we're looking forward to the next phase. Well, how tough has this been on your residents? 
actually, I think it has been harder on the families than it have the residents. Um, we've kept them as busy as we can. We've been creative with activities. Um, they think of it as the plague. They'll ask if the plague is still out there. But I think they have really appreciated that we are protecting them. I think they understand that. And um, we're, we've all been in it together here in our little community. And I've been real proud of our staff because they want to protect the residents as well. And um, just hope we continue to get through it. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about about those staff members too. I mean, they really are on the front lines of trying to keep people safe. Yes. So is, you know, what kind of stress is this putting on them? Um, I think we have our moments when we get weary. We've been able to provide the proper um, protective equipment for them as far as our isolation supplies. Uh, we've done some incentive things for our staff some morale boosters along the way. Um, but I think they're handling it well. They're, you know, as concerned as anyone is. Okay. If you have questions or comments for us, you can send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We are talking with several people involved with uh, nursing home and long-term care today. We have Lynn Clough, the state ombudsman for long-term care, Melissa Romer, uh, care management team leader for Area 10, Luann Blake from the Heritage House um, facility in Greensburg, Indiana, and Sarah Waddle from AARP. She's the state director. Sarah Whitmire, do you have a question? I was curious just about what incentives do nursing homes and care facilities have to release this information? Like, um, I, don't, I think maybe it was Sarah who was saying that, you know, some of them are doing this on their own, but it seems like, you know, it certainly, it's, it's hard for that not to cast a bad light on the nursing home or for people to think, what are they doing wrong there? Um, so I'm wondering who would be best to do that. I mean, Lynn, do you want to chime in first? Yeah, this, this is Lynn. Um, and thank you for that question. I think that, um, as far as an incentive, I, I think you you kind you've hit it on the on the on the nose, um, is, if that's the phrase. Um, not being, I think that being open and transparent with with you, that's the best thing. You want to have that open communication. Not having that, you know, trying to hide in uh, or giving the appearance of trying to hide kind of, that kind of information can cast, I would think, could cast a, a bad light on your facility, and, and no one wants that. Um, if your facility gives good care, you want people to know about it. You want residents to come to your facility. Um, so, you know, the coronavirus doesn't discriminate. It's, it's, um, it can be anywhere. So um, if it's in your facility, um, it, it's in hospitals. It's in, you know, it, it is everywhere. It's in schools. Um, so um, that aren't in session, but um, it, it, it's not something that reflects badly on your facility unless you, you know, you admit it and say you're doing something about it. Let your, let your residents and their family members know. Let, the, let your communities know what's going on. I'd like to hear what Luann says about that too, as a healthcare administrator. What about this, you know, that we've been talking some about the transparency and the idea of getting data from long-term care facilities. Is it a good idea or, or not a good idea to release that data? We've been open as far as reporting to the necessary agencies that we're required to. We're also doing a, it's called a column all a site that we put messages out to the families and responsible parties to keep them informed of our numbers at our facility. So I think it's very open. Um, it's good to be open about it. Mm -hmm. Okay. I want to ask Melissa Romer from Area 10. Um, you deal with people who are, well, first of all, I want you to talk a little bit about the range of, of uh, 
the range of different services you have at Area 10, and then I'll follow up with my question that's related to COVID. Sure, absolutely. Um, Area 10 Agency on Aging um, offers a range of programs. Um, the one that I supervise is the care management aspect, and we work directly with the Family Social Services Administration Division of Aging to provide an alternative to long-term care in a facility and instead providing those services in the home and community. I think it's very important to have transparency, um, especially for facilities, so that individuals can make an informed decision on whether they would like to be in a facility receiving care or if their needs can be met at home with caregivers coming in, um, services being provider, provided to them in their own home. Um, you know, that should be the, the individual's decision so that they can make sure that their needs are met. Um, we also have um, the same requirements for an individual that is authorized to be in a long-term care facility or skilled nursing facility, that same level of need um, is what can make someone eligible to receive Medicaid waiver services in their own home to pay for those caregivers and different services. We have our rural transit that provides transportation for individuals from a rural to an urban setting and vice versa. Uh, we do not do urban to urban. Um, we also have our Enderite Center, uh, which individuals can come and exercise, get involved in different social activities, which is very difficult during this time. Um, but our wonderful staff members have been able to move to a virtual platform with Zoom meetings that our um, participants can join on a Zoom meeting. Of course, that comes along with need for access to computers and internet. Uh, we have congregate meal sites um, where we would have individuals come to share a free hot meal um, and be able to socialize. We have transformed those into a site where individuals can come and pick up frozen meals um, that they can take back home with them and heat up as needed. We have our mobile food pantry. Uh, we get donations from community members, Hoosier Hills Food Bank, and we are able to provide uh, right now three bags of groceries um, to each person that is on our mobile, mobile food pantry route. And those are delivered solely by volunteers. Our rural transit and our retired senior volunteer programs have come up with an innovative way to provide services to people in their home safely during this time. And they are able to run some essential errands, such as go to the grocery store, pick up an order and bring it to the person, as well as going to the pharmacy, uh, picking up medications and bringing them to the person's home. We work directly with a lot of community providers that staff the caregivers that come into the home to provide nursing and other caregiving activities. And, you know, we've seen those caregivers wearing gloves and masks and making sure that they're taking all precautions um, to try to prevent the spread of this. I want to ask you first, and then I think the rest of our, our uh, guests can also weigh in on this, but I think we, we often think about um, older older people having uh, at times uh, bouts of, of isolation. If people don't come visit them enough, their families are off doing other things. When, then you add COVID on top of that. Um, what have you been finding with the Area 10 clients? Are, are, they, are people able to um, have enough contact with the outside world, enough contact with with other, other, you know, that human touch, that human contact? Um, or is there something that, you know, you'd like our listeners to know about, about reaching out? Sure. Our retired senior volunteer program um, is making friendly calls. If anyone is interested in being a volunteer that can call someone, or especially anyone in need of just wanting a, a friendly conversation to kind of pick up their spirits and continue to try to get some social interaction during these times. 
um, they can contact Amy Wardlow. She is our program manager with Retired Senior Volunteer Program. Um, our main number at Area 10 is 812-876-3383. Um, and we have a directory that um, can get people to Rural Transit, Mobile Food Pantry, RSVP, any of the programs that we provide. Okay. Uh, we also have individuals that have made cards um, and different things that we've been able to mail out to participants and try to get in contact that way. And for individuals that have access to the internet and computer, um, we've been able to use some Microsoft Teams meetings um, to get in contact. We have a lot of people in Monroe and Owen County that live with family members. And we've received a lot of response that the family really enjoys being able to stay at home, work remotely, um, and be around their family members a little bit more. Um, we've also been working with the caregivers of the people that we serve to make sure that they have necessary support. Um, it's very easy to feel overwhelmed in this time. And uh, so just trying to reach out and meet needs as they arise. We have our Aging and Disability Resource Center that people can call to get information or referrals for different types of services and subsidies that are available in Monroe and Owen County. Um, so really just trying to do a lot of outreach, stay in regular contact with people and let them know they're not alone. Sarah Waddle and uh, Lynn, what about this isolation issue? Um, I'll jump in here. Um, you know, I think this was something that um, was an issue prior to COVID, um, you know, making sure that our older adults um, knew what to do in the instance of, of social isolation. The AARP Foundation um, actually has some really good um, tools, including an assessment. Um, it's called Connect to Effect, and you can go to the AARP Foundation's website to see um, more about that. But I will just hone in on the caregiver piece. Um, I think that there are a lot more of our family caregivers that um, are balancing um, perhaps um, a job at home, uh, kids at home, and maybe um, a parent who um, was going to uh, an adult day service and now they're at home with them. And so I really want those caregivers um, to step back and, and make sure that they're doing okay and reaching out um, if they need those services. And I couldn't recommend um, anywhere to go first except for um, Area 10 or, or whatever area agency on aging um, covers your area. Lynn, do you have anything to add? Um, th thank you. Um, I, I just want to uh, add, you know, I want to thank um, Melissa for sharing um, all of Area 10's, um, all of your resources and Sarah for, you know, uh, talking about all of the area agencies on aging because they're all good um, sources of information for um, caregivers. As far as the impacts of social isolation on um, older adults in, in long-term care facilities, certainly, you know, we, we've, we've talked about that. And, you know, I think the facilities, facilities, their activity directors have done, and facilities have done a great job. And I've seen pictures of um, um, residents playing uh, hallway bingo, and I've seen uh, pictures of them, um, just doing all kinds of activities. Uh, they're being very, very creative um, to keep minds and bodies active during this time. Uh, uh, but at the same time, we've also heard of people who are um, um, staying in their rooms um, and not getting out. Um, and that's, that's a problem I know that I've heard of, um, of you know, certainly people with dementia um, forgetting what their loved ones looked like after um, such a, a long period of time of not seeing them. And that's, that can be heartbreaking. Um, so there's, 
there. Um, that's another reason that I'm I'm so very happy that you know the, the outdoor visitation is starting, um, and and the essential family caregivers um, you know can be can be starting to to go back into facilities. But um, you know as far as as working with uh, people with dementia and in memory care units. Um, this, I think this has been particularly difficult for, for some of them. Um, so, um, you know, there are uh, resources available um, on the ISDH website uh, for special care suggestions um, for people with dementia who may need to have been moved from their normal room um, because in the beginning when um, COVID uh, first began in facilities, uh, as facilities tried to, you know, separate people who had COVID and were symptomatic from those who did not and were not showing symptoms, sometimes people with dementia ended up in different rooms and that has caused some issues. Um, so there has been an attempt to, um, to, to make sure that their living environment is continues to be as familiar as possible and, and, and um, minimize their changes in daily routine. Just things like that, tips like that um, are, are so helpful. Lynn, sure. could you talk a little bit about how folks, uh, what guidance you're giving them to prepare for a second wave perhaps of the virus and I guess sort of like what lessons have been learned that maybe they would consider in terms of preparing for a second wave? I think that, um, you know, I, uh, I, I don't know who said it. Uh, it was either Sarah or Melissa, um, but, you know, continue to be vigilant um, and, and, you know, just be prepared. I think we've learned a lot of lessons through this. It's something that we've never been through before, obviously. It's been an unprecedented time. Um, so um, we, we just want to make sure that, um, um, residents are, long-term care residents are um, kept, you know, in, in maintaining their physical health is, is so important and making sure that they're, they're still moving and their mental health and, and just keep them going through this time. And, um, you know, waiting for hopefully a treatment or a vaccine, you know, that, that may be a long time. We just don't know. I think that, um, I think we're going to be in for a long, a period of, um, I think we've entered our new normal for now, <laughs> um, unfortunately, but um, I know that Hoosiers um, are very good at making the best with what they're, they're given. Um, so I know that we're going to come through this, but um, I do think a surge is possible. I think we're seeing spikes certainly in other states. Um, and, uh, you know, I just don't know what, what the future holds. Luann, do you want to uh, address that? Or is your facility, I know that, you know, you've had to make a lot of changes. Now we're starting to open up a little bit. And I think the, the worry is that if we open up, the state opens up too much or too fast, that there could be another surge. Um, are you ready for it? I believe the industry has been altered, hopefully not forever, but I'm sure there'll be some changes ongoing. Um, one thing I wanted to mention that we're doing a lot of in our facility is FaceTime. We've been FaceTiming families uh, frequently, and I think that's been helpful to our residents as well as the families um, to see what the future holds. Right. How many people do you have at your facility? Uh, right now we have 50. Okay. Uh, our census is down a little bit. Uh, we're admitting very cautiously, but we're at 50 today. Now, we just uh, mentioned the, the fact that at times, if, if somebody had presented with symptoms of COVID, you would have to isolate them in the facility. Have you had that kind of, um, have you had to we, do that? Well, we haven't had COVID as far as new admissions, we isolate them for 14 days uh, once they're admitted, just to make sure there's no symptoms. Okay. We had a question come in, and I don't know if you can answer it or if somebody else could, about 
uh, contact tracing. You know, if in a facility someone does um, test positive for COVID, are there are there ways to find out you know who all they came in contact with and how does how does that work? How does contact tracing work within a facility? At Heritage House, we've not had to do that here. We right. do not have any positive COVID residents. Okay. So we have not had to do that, fortunately. Okay. Lynn, do you know about that? I am not the person to speak to that. <laughs> I, okay. I, I do not know. Okay. All right. Well, we only have about a minute and a half to go uh, in the program. So I wanted to just give, uh, I'll start with Sarah. Sarah Waddle, is, is there anything that we've missed that you'd like to add today? Um, no, I don't think so. I think it's been a, a great conversation. Um, I just would say, you know, if folks are experiencing um, hurdles or speed bumps um, in terms of um, relations with their their facilities, um, you know, long-term care ombudsman is definitely your best friend. Um, AARP would also um, like to hear from you just so we know and have a good pulse of what's going on out there. Um, you can always give us a call at our toll-free number 866-448-3618 uh, um, or you can catch us um, online at aarp.org slash in and of course um, on Facebook. Okay, I'm going to give Lynn the last word so we only have about 30 seconds. Okay, I would just um, urge everyone to residents um, and family members to stay connected. Uh, make sure you communicate your needs uh, to your facility and um, raise concerns to your um, local uh, long-term care ombudsman. And uh, I think it's been a great conversation too, and I appreciate the time. All right. Thank you very much. That's Lynn Clove, the state ombudsman for long-term care. I've also heard from Melissa Romer, Louie Blake, and Sarah Waddle. For our, uh, for my co-hosts, Sarah Whitmire, for producers Benta Boutier and John Bailey, engineers Matt Stonecipher and Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, Fiber Internet, Streaming TV, Home Security, and Automation in Southern Indiana, and from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.